Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. Uh, today it's going to be from Matthew thirteen forty-seven through 50 on page 980 in the Bibles around you. This is the parable of the net. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets and threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I'm sorry, Adia, did you say you drink a lot of coffee and that's why your leg is shaking? (laughs) No, it's because your leg's cold because you got these holes in your kneecaps. (laughs) I gave a thought, by the way, to coming up here with the scissors, and as soon as she was done, just like cutting these things off right at the kneecap, just to fit in a little bit. So... We've been in this series on the parables in Matthew 13. We've been talking about the kingdom of God for a little over a month now and how the kingdom is communicated, expressed, talked about in Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 13. And we're wrapping up this series today. And I'm only going to talk for a minute or two about this parable of the net. The first thing that jumps to mind when you read these few verses is the idea of judgment. And it's kind of a daunting and haunting theme and subject, but it's very clear in the words that Jesus says that there will come a day uh, at the end of all things when there will be a judgment, and he uses the image of this net that is going through the water and picking up all sorts of things, and the day will come when Jesus, in his wisdom, will sort out what's in the net as a kind of metaphor of judgment. And we can't escape that theme either in this particular parable or throughout the Bible, it is there. And so we want to acknowledge that. But it also sort of related, brings up this idea of uh, choosing and what we choose, or if you will, where we stand in our lives. And I mentioned this at the beginning of this series, that one of the reasons Jesus uses parables is to compel a decision from people, to instigate a choice, to kind of set before them the options, and invite them to make their decision on where they will stand, or if you will, what they will identify with. Identify with him and his way, or with their own way. So we had the whole parable about the soils, the different kinds of soils, representative of the different hearts that we have when we hear the truth and how we respond to it. And in a sense, Jesus is saying, you have a choice to make on where you will stand and how you will hear his words. We talked last week about the parable of the pearl of great price and the treasure hidden in the field and the idea being that your heart will follow your treasure and so there's a choice to be made. What will our treasure be? What will we pursue? What will we give our lives to? And so forth. But in thinking about this idea of identifying, where do I stand? It was reflecting a bit on the crazy World Cup fans that are in this on this planet and I happened to watch two 
uh, videos, where one was in France, one was in Russia, where these mass number of people, thousands of people gather at an outdoor venue to watch the World Cup game on a big screen TV, and then they put a camera right on the crowd, and you're not even watching the game, but you just get to see their reaction when something exciting happens in the game. And I saw one from France and one from Russia. The one in Russia was where their goalie made a save on a penalty kick or, or a yeah, penalty kick. And so everybody just went crazy. And it's just this insanity that breaks out over the idea of either winning or scoring a goal or the possibility of that the team is going to win. And it, it, it struck me how these are mass numbers of people who uh, are proud of their heritage. This is the flag they live under, and they gather to celebrate that. And this idea of identifying, this idea of where do we stand or what do we choose, really is where the whole idea of baptism comes in for a follower of Jesus. So I want to say a word about it. It's coming up in a week and a half or so. But the idea of baptism is essentially where we say, I live under Jesus' flag. That's who I follow. That's who I serve. That's who I've devoted my life to. And my identity is in him, and this is where I stand. And so just to throw it out one more time, if you have never been baptized and you are a follower of Jesus, that statement is worth thinking about. I've never been baptized, and I'm a follower of Jesus. The whole point of baptism, or at least one of the points of baptism, is to publicly declare in front of other people who are in the same situation that you live under his flag and you follow him. And so when we gather for baptism, it's a very significant part of the life of a church because it is where we remember why we exist and we declare publicly this is where this person stands. They live under the flag of Jesus. If you have not been baptized, you're interested in talking more about it. There's a class happening right now. I'd encourage you to get up and leave and go to it. Or if you prefer, you can simply call Lorraine this week and we'll arrange to, to have a way to chat with you about that and uh, help you understand what it is if you're interested in pursuing it. Then the last thing that comes out, not only of this parable, but of all the parables we've looked at in Matthew chapter 13, is the magnitude of God's kingdom. Meaning, the kingdom of God is active and operating uh, in and around me, in and around you, in and around Oak Hills. But it goes far beyond that. The work of God in this world is much greater than what's happening in our individual lives or in our church. In fact, God is doing things all over, and we celebrate that, and we remember that that is the movement and the activity and the power of his kingdom. And many of you know that uh, when Kent uh, left Oak Hills, he went to work in our denomination, and part of what he's had a chance to do is travel around all over our country and Canada and uh, interact with pastors and church leaders and get a first-hand front-row seat to actually see what God's up to uh, in and around the world. So we're going to hear from him in a moment on some of these things, but if you would take a look at this video. We are all NAB. My major job is to come alongside pastors and regional ministers and talk about uh, how do we follow God more. I went to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and I was uh, there uh, on a Saturday morning. And Gene Kern from Sunrise Baptist Church uh, gave a call and said, are you interested in 
uh, planning a church out in California. We came out, scoped out the situation they scoped out, and they uh, asked us to come out and start Oak Hills Church. We were for a while the kind of the church what's happening now. We're growing very fast. We're following the, the classic seeker model, uh, attractional model, kind of the church's destination and many people were coming and we discovered over a period of, during this period of time that the way we attracted people, the way we kept people coming to our church has a formative effect. It shapes people. In the, those ways we were shaping them essentially as consumers. So we began to move away from that, the, the, the thought of uh, the church as a destination, uh, the, the idea, that, uh, the kind of attractional model, and we sought to figure out ways to help people in the details of their lives learn to follow Christ more, more deeply. A church that begins to prioritize that has a whole other strategy to think through in terms of how do, you, how do you do that as a community of faith. How do you do that not just as isolated individuals and creates a culture where there's a hunger for that and people are actually learning how to do it with, with results of transformation that are, that are noticeable and uh, God showing up there in marvelous ways. So let's welcome Reverend Carlson. So uh, that gave a little picture of, uh, I know why you did that, by the way, but anyway, that gave a little picture of uh, what you've been doing. So talk a bit, maybe tell everybody what NAB is and fill out the details a bit of what you've been doing the last couple of years. Well, my, um, uh, my official title at the denomination is Vice President of Leadership Formation. It's a brand new position, so there isn't really a uh, job, there wasn't a job description at the time. Um, but it was, uh, do we get a ringing thing? You get that, three cents? Hey, that's, you're getting, that's an age. That's an age thing? <laughs> and so it begins. The, um, this is supposed to be serious. I know, we're serious here on this. But it's, so it's a new position we've been seeking uh, to, I've been seeking to carve it out, understand it, and it's been developing as we're, as we're going along. And, um, yes, there is. Okay, I, yeah. Yeah, I don't need to keep bringing it up. You hear the, that? Yeah, she's yeah, working okay. on it. That's good. We got a professional up there. So, uh, the and so what I'm working with, I, I think stepping back, is talking about the spiritual development, spiritual maturity, spiritual growth of pastors, um, of leaders in 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 the in the church. Uh, we have used here, and I have used a lot. Uh, Dallas Willard's quote on uh, the. Um, the most important thing we bring to the church as leaders is the people we are becoming. So we have to pay very close attention as to how to arrange our lives in such a way so that we're becoming a person who's full of faith, full of confidence in God, experiencing joy, content, increasing in contentment and all those things. Um, also, we have to at the same time work in and rethinking the church. Uh, at the what many people refer to as the end of Christendom, new kind of scorecards, uh, what does faithfulness look like? We have a, a number of programs that we work with. We have a one-year program with pastors and leaders where we give an overview of missional formational priorities. There's a two-year program where you go in deeper in that, and people are involved in that in a regional situation. There's a one-year, uh, once-a-year event where all the people who are part of this missional formational journey are... Um, seeking to uh, come together and encourage each other. The theory is that a fire has been created, 
and we're by God and we're seeking to figure out how to throw wood on the fire and keep it going, encourage each other so that the growth is, uh, is more viral, organic as opposed to just uh, organizational. I have this, uh, we work with uh, uh, millennials, so we have a two and a half day program where we gather together ten millennials at a time, five women, five men, and we talk about uh, uh, in, in, uh, intense time of listening and of uh, considering carefully the issue of the gospel, the church, uh, um, the kingdom of God, and all, all those things. Uh, and then I'm working on a program where I'm working with pastors and their leadership boards as to how to live and do church in such a way so uh, that there is a more of a discernment model and understanding uh, that how we are to hear from God and lead in a way that is uh, godly and not just only strategic. And then I do speaking, retreats, you know, consulting, mentoring, yeah. that kind of stuff. So I was in the room a few times when at, at some of the venues that Kent just mentioned and saw much of what Kent was up to and the impact it was having and the way it was shaping uh, pastors and leaders. And I thought it would be good for us to to hear about it and get an update and, and kind of be challenged in some of the things that you've been thinking about and working on. So you, you talked about um, Christendom and in particular post-Christendom. So spend some time, talk about what that is. And then as you travel around and as you're going here and there, uh, talk about some of the signs or, or indicators that uh, it is in fact, we are in a, in a time of post-Christendom. It's not a season, it's probably permanent. So talk a bit about what that is and, sure. and help us understand it. Well, first start with Christendom. Um, to kind of be real basic upon it, Christendom is built on this, this meta-narrative of the story of Christianity, the Older and Newer Testaments, the whole Christmas, Easter uh, story. Um, that's the meta-narrative, but bigger than that, it is th this meta-narrative then supported by cultural, societal, political, often even military power, um, where that Christian narrative has been embedded in uh, all this cultural power. Uh, and this is what is ending, uh, this kind of nature of Christendom. Christianity is uh, not ending at all, obviously. It's thriving, it's alive and well. Christendom is ending, and we're moving into a post-Christendom Christendom world, and I would like to be, like many others are, a voice that says this is actually a very wonderful thing and something that we can welcome and embrace. For, for the first three centuries of, of the Christian faith, uh, which is a long time, you know, 300 years and plus, uh, the, the Christian faith lived on the margins of, of society. Uh, it was not an official or accepted religion in the Roman Empire. In fact, every once in a while, there would be a Roman emperor that would come along and say, I just really don't like Christians, so let's kill them. And so they would send out this kind of persecution, and Christians who were arrested were given the choice to declare that Caesar is Lord or to die, and many indeed declared that, uh, would not declare that Caesar is Lord, and, and so they, they were put to death. About the 4th century, beginning part early in the 4th century, the Roman Emperor Constantine, he, for, for reasons that are probably fairly complicated, he decided that he was going to be a Christian. And, um, and so by doing so, Christianity became an official, not the official, but one of the accepted legal religions in, uh, in the Roman Empire. By the end, nearing the end of that 4th century, the Emperor Theodosius came along, 
And he declared that Christianity was now the official religion of, of the Roman Empire. And so Christianity, you can imagine the huge change that happened at this point. We were on the margins of society, periodically persecuted, an illegal religion, thriving in, our, in their experience of the reality of the risen Christ among us. Now all of a sudden brought into the power, the societal, the cultural, uh, the military power of Rome. And now this Christian meta-narrative is bolstered by all the state and, and uh, military power. And the West at that time entered into Christendom, and we've had centuries uh, of that. We've uh, state churches, which I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with. All this began to unravel uh, 200, somewhere 200, 300 years ago, little parts of it, but it kept moving fairly quickly. We, the whole uh, experience of the Enlightenment, uh, humanism, where the individual man, the individual woman becomes the measure uh, of all things. In that process, eventually, Europe's state churches fell. Um, we, we see the changing here in North America, particularly Canada, is ahead of us. Uh, but the United States is uh, following closely behind, particularly on both coasts and in all the metropolitan areas, um, the, the Christian meta-narrative and the cultural, structural, political structures surrounding the Christian faith are, are, are crumbling. And the signs are, well, they're fairly obvious ones. We, we all kind of see this. There's a much more pluralistic society. The Christian worldview is no longer the only show in town. It is still fairly dominant in, in the United States, at least, but it is uh, unraveling largely because of uh, pluralism. I mean, some of the simple things you can, you can see is that church attendance, church involvement is way down. Um, uh, you, you take just the phenomena of soccer, uh, and it used to be when soccer first became very popular that you would never have practices or games on Sunday morning in the very recent past and now that's just normative you practice you play uh, on Sunday mornings uh, the majority and this is important for us to understand the majority of non-church people anywhere between 60 and 70 percent will never come to church again as it's currently structured it's not that they're not interested in it they'll just never come again they've made that decision church as it's currently structured um, 65 to 75 percent of millennials rarely or never attend church. Uh, if you, you know, that's just uh, a raw reality. N these numbers are growing higher uh, with uh, the next generation behind, many people refer to as Generation Z. Uh, this is not going to change. This is a permanent condition, uh, and it's, it's only going to increase. So <clears throat> when you think of the church, in that sort of world, this sort of world, what are the implications of what you just said for church and for a church to fulfill its calling? What are some of the things it needs to be thinking about and even doing in, given the world we now live in? I'll probably come back to this a couple times, but um, we have to really stop fearing it. Uh, fear is a major um, Phenomena within Christian churches in the United States. If you pay attention, listen to the political dialogue. Fear. It, it, we are. We have become fear-based for a number of reasons. Uh, what we and, and instead of that, we have to learn how to welcome this new phenomena. This this welcome the end of Christendom because there's a lot about Christendom that wasn't Christian. You could be a part of Christendom but not really actually be walking the way of Jesus. And so this. Um, 
uh, it's, it's the ability that we have to not live in fear, but to live in love and instead welcome this opportunity for us to have our Christian faith, in, in, in a sense, rescued from some of the irrelevancy and um, impotence that we have been trapped in uh, for some time. We've been trapped in many ways in a religious culture that is somewhat indistinguishable from the world. Uh, we should kind of admit that. And, and, and not make excuses for it and, and not try to minimize that. The, we've been trapped for some time in a religious culture that by and large is indistinguishable from the world and non-church people know this. They're not antagonistic towards it. They just say, okay, well that's, that's okay, but I've got other stuff to do on Sunday morning uh, because why do I need to do it? There's nothing really different. Um, the Christian faith is simply not the large cultural force it has always been in the United States. It's still a cultural force, it's just not the largest, or it's not the large central uh, force. So what have we tried to do? What has happened with uh, those of us in the religious or Christian subculture? What many of us have tried to do is we've tried to cling on and hold on to that power by various ways, politically, um, trying to get people to say... Uh, Merry Christmas instead of Happy Holidays during, during, during Christmas. Uh, but these are just power moves. They're not at the essence of what it means to actually be Christian. We're not trying to force people to act as though uh, that this is a Christian uh, a nation. We're trying to invite people into an actual encounter with the living Christ through communities of faith who are, who are living this out. Uh, I think, and it'd be great to have conversations together on this, have conversations around your home, but listen to the popular culture. Many Christians are afraid, just fearful. Uh, you kind of get the sense they want their old, we want our old world, uh, our old world back, our old life back. But, you know, uh, fear is not supposed to be what dominates us as a Christian community. Love is supposed to be the thing that dominates us. That old world, that Christendom, it's gone. It's not coming back. And we should welcome that because we have the opportunity to live out our Christian faith in a remarkably beautiful beautiful way. The great danger we actually have is that we might sacrifice the core of the Christian ethic, the core of the way of Jesus, in our attempts to regain power. That's an awful thing to do. Uh, and it won't work. Uh, the church as destination is ending. Uh, the church, no, in many ways, our kind of gospel, our message, has had the, the church has this antidote. Here's the problem. People are sinners, and if they don't accept Jesus, they're going to go to hell when they die. And so if you come to church, we'll give you the antidote. Believe in Jesus, now your sins are forgiven, you go to heaven when you die. All that's true and wonderful, um, but it's not the whole story. You're actually, the Christian message, the Christian good news, is to invite people in this other way of living. And so the church does not so much have the antidote as the church needs to become the antidote. We become this alternative way of living, this way of Jesus that is beautiful, that's, that's so attractive, that is transformative. And, uh, and so we invite people into that way. Uh, I believe more than ever before, I know Mikey does as well, that the church is where it's at. Um, the, 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 the church is God's plan A, and there really isn't a plan B. Uh, but the church, to be the church, has to be following this, this way of Jesus. And we're going to have to radically rethink 
what it means to be the church going forward. Uh, you'll see, and I think uh, historically, uh, going forward, we'll see a bunch of changes that are beginning to happen already. Uh, churches that get serious about this will be thinking much more uh, carefully about how to develop missional communities, communities of faith who are gathered together smaller in a neighborhood where people are living together well. Pastors will become more and more bivocational. Uh, they'll kind of live in the community. The, all the trappings of the church are not ne- as necessary in these missional communities. It'll be centered around the presence of Christ among us, um, and we'll be living out of the presence of Christ, that encounter with Christ. There'll be disciplined communities where we will pursue the spiritual disciplines of the faith together, not just as individuals, but in, but in a community. There'll be a tremendous reaching out uh, to the marginalized, we will look for people on the margins, the immigrant, the, 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 the children, uh, the disadvantaged in any way, and we will seek to demonstrate the love of Christ because we need the gift that they will bring to us as well. Uh, it will not be based on fear, which is central uh, to our political discourse today. Uh, and there are unscrupulous people who are um, exploiting that fear. Uh, the church has to be about walking the Jesus way. And the walking of the Jesus way is centered around love, and love especially for those on the, the margins. The way forward, really, uh, and I know Mikey and the leadership here at Oak Hill so uh, believes in this, the way forward is with this beautiful expression of what it means to be the church uh, t- uh, together, where people are being transformed and our communities of faith are being transformed in places that are pervaded with love. So there's this, it, it almost seems like a contradiction, at least a paradox, of we have this individualized world where we approach things for what's in it for us, our preferences, our life, our path of life that we're on. But what I hear you saying almost is ratcheting up the sense of the, the importance of community in this, in post-Christendom, that the church as community becomes even more important to embody and model this peculiar way. Yes, no, absolutely. There's, um, we have an individualized faith, primarily because we've had an individualized gospel for some time. It's about the individual's forgiveness of sin. And so our gospel has been about how to have those sins forgiven so you go to heaven when you die. Uh, Christianity has always been a communal faith. The first name of Christians, the first uh, reference to Christians, the first name given to them, and they were followers of the way. And it is, it is certainly issues that we have to, they are certainly involved with issues that we need to believe and affirm as true. But more central than that in so many ways, it is this uh, lifestyle. It is this walking the Jesus way. It's taking up your cross and, and following him, denying ourselves. This is what we are, in, this is what people are invited into. And this has to be, this is not just an individual endeavor. We're not talking about just the formation of individuals. We're talking about the formations of, of communities of faith who are actually living this, this beautiful way together, which takes uh, intense purposefulness for it to happen. So a lot of what you're, you're doing, a lot of where you're spending your time is to travel around the United States and Canada and uh, be with, interact with, listen to pastors, other Christian leaders, and so on. So what are some of the, what are some of the conversations that, that you keep having in those settings? What are, what are the things you're seeing and hearing that pastors and Christian leaders are, are feeling, experiencing, wondering about? What's stirring in them that you're kind of picking up as themes? Well, I, I think, um, and you and I have been in many of these settings over the, over the last 15 years or so, 
Uh, we've gone to places and we've seen over the last 15 years uh, tremendous change from where we first did. So there's a hunger for these things. I do want to say that there's probably, I don't know, it, there's probably, there are a good number of people, good number of churches, uh, where there is no stirring whatsoever. People are actually um, thinking that what we need to do is keep doing what we're doing, only do it better, you know, double down on it. Um, so there's not that hunger. There, and so if someone doesn't think the patient is sick, um, no one's going to call in the doctor. So, uh, and a lot of people don't think necessarily the patient is sick. They just, you know, just need more vitamins. And they keep doing what they're doing would be to do what? Church as a destination, trying to get people to come to our church so that they can get quote-unquote saved uh, and have them join this kind of Christian subculture that we have where now we're going to church, which we just have to admit is somewhat indistinguishable from the rest of the world. Okay. Um, but putting aside those people who don't have a stirring inside, the two, two general issues that, uh, or, or things that I, I'm seeing first is the, the extraordinary amount of pastors and Christian leaders who are experiencing the stirring. Uh, something's, they feel something's wrong with the, with the world. They can't put their finger on it. It's that matrix line. Matrix line. It's like a splinter in your mind. You know it's there, but there's something wrong. And you just, you just feel it. Uh, because the grind of doing church for uh, um, that, trying to keep nominally committed people happy and coming to your church is just exhausting. Uh, a couple stories. One, uh, so you see the, the spread... One is a young pastor uh, I know, just a beautiful man, he and his wife, beautiful couple, beautiful family. They went to this uh, small church in a small town in, in Canada, far away from a lot of other towns, a um, number of churches in town, quite a number of churches in town. This church has uh, about 75 people in it. The average age is around 75. The, the, um, the one older guy, 75, he has uh, the key to the church. And he opens it 15 minutes before the church service. At one minute past the hour, he locks it. Um, so that if anyone comes late, they have to knock on the door. And he goes down there and opens it and lets them in. And they lock it because like 100 years ago, there was a homeless person who came in and, you know, caused some commotion. So they don't want that to happen again. And they had a whole vote where they said, you can't do that anymore. You've got to keep the door unlocked. And he just keeps locking it. You know, what are you going to do? Like wrestle him and right. take it away from him. And so, I actually uh, kind of like that. Yeah, I do, yes. <laughs> and uh, so that's the environment. This guy has been pouring himself into this church, and for five years he's just been beat up. Just beat up, depressed, discouraged. I don't want to be a pastor. I want to be a, a mail deliverer or a butcher or something like that. I'm just tired. Uh, but something happens with some of the uh, people that he was working with, the young people, high schoolers, um, uh, Millennials, twenty-somethings. Uh, there's a, this this hunger to um, to experience the reality of God among them. So this group just started to get together on Saturday nights, and something's going on there. So I'm showing up in this town. I go to the Saturday night service. I walk into the building, and I'm I'm sobbing uh, immediately. This guy's come through a lot of the programming stuff we've done. Come to our one-year program, and he's been uh, just a beautiful guy. And um, you've met him. And, and the, uh, he's got this, this thing has happened that it wasn't planned, it wasn't strategized out, 
it's just this meeting together, and I walk in there, there's this couple 16-year-old girls playing the guitar, another guy in the drums, and they're just singing. And this room is packed out, it's an ugly room, the lighting's all terrible, you can't see anybody, but like the Spirit of God is there, and you just, you just know that. This thing w- w- was happening, and ultimately that reality is going to bleed over and change the whole church. It'll take a while and there'll be some battles through the process. Another one, just this last week, I got an email from this guy. Very conservative church. I visited that area last year, earlier this year and was in a little table group with this guy. He emails me back. He's 16, 61 years old. Incredibly conservative area. Incredibly conservative churches. His church is very conservative. And he's got this kind of recognizing this feeling that something's wrong. It's crazy the kind of energy and stuff that I'm doing that isn't bringing about the reality of Christ's presence uh, among us. And he's, we're engaged in this conversation back and forth where he's saying, I can't keep doing this. I'm rethinking everything I know about my Christian faith. And he's 61 years old. His whole life is based on doing it this certain way. And he's asking questions that are, in my opinion, are unbelievably courageous. And he's like a, a hero. So you have pastors, uh, church leaders rethinking the church, rethinking, having a fuller understanding of what the good news actually is, the, the kingdom of God, what, what does eternal life mean. They're rethinking the whole concept of church as destination, uh, asking, is this all there is questions? Uh, recognizing the game of trying to convince people to come to your church versus another church, it's just exhausting. Um, and so young pastors and old pastors are asking these different kind of questions. They're asking end of Christendom questions. There's this hunger for the presence of God, for the encounter with God, the reality of that encounter. Tired, people are tired of competing with other forces in our culture to meet the consumer needs of the church going public. Uh, leaders are tired uh, increasingly of being a vendor of religious goods and and services. Uh, And that's really good for people to feel that because non-church people, for the most part, don't want the show anymore. They want reality. They want the reality of of the spiritual world. And that's what we're to be about. Pastors, Christian leaders, what we're really about is teaching people and demonstrating to people that invisible things are real. And that God has designed the human being in such a way that we can interact with and be transformed uh, by these invisible things, kingdom of God, etc. Second issue, and I'll go quicker with this one, with pastors and leaders, there's a tremendous amount of loneliness and isolation. The, the, the way of doing church tends to isolate us, particularly in, in, in leadership positions. And because uh, we're continually trying to perform, to, to make sure that the, the, the numbers of people are, are coming. And one of the things that we discover in life, if we're reflective at all, is that nobody really thinks about us. Um, the only one who is obsessed with me is, is me. And it's just, so the reason we're lonely sometimes because we actually are alone. We're the only one thinking about ourselves uh, all the time. And uh, so when you have this loneliness and you feel that, you feel that sense of isolation, you have a tendency to go try to make friends or connect with other people who are lonely. And that loneliness meets your loneliness, and what we end up is double loneliness. And we can't connect. We feel like the other person is wanting something from us that I cannot give, or the, uh, and, and so we separate. There's a paradox here, the pursuing loneliness. The pursuit of loneliness is through the pursuit of solitude where we go into solitude for extended periods of time and we discover there all the props that we have in our life, we put up in our life that um, 
that cause us to, that, that we use to justify our existence. And in solitude, those props are kicked out, and it's just me and God. Me and God in my rawness, my nakedness, my vulnerability, my sin. And that's the only place, really, that we can ultimately have a commitment to, 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 to Christ. And so one of the things we do is to help pastors and Christian leaders to pursue solitude where we are shaped in such a way so that we are actually freed up to love another person, not for what I get from them, not afraid of other people, what they'll take from us, but as people who are becoming increasingly certain and understanding about who we are, where we've come from, where we're going, that we matter to God, um, out of that more fullness that we then are actually able to enter relationships in a more healthy way. So we've spent the last month as you know, talking about reality, trying to, the kingdom of God, the invisible realm, the sense of uh, connecting, communing, experiencing God. We've talked about, you know, read about these things, read in the Bible, read about it in, in other people who write about it. They use language that's enthralling, language that's transformative. So you get this impression of life in God's kingdom is uh, the very best life, the very good life, and it's transformative. The question is, and yet so many people, individuals, or congregations, or leaders, struggle to experience that goodness. There seem to be barriers between the vision they've been given, or that we believe, and the experience they actually have. What are some of those barriers? Why is it so elusive sometimes to actually experience it? Well, uh Let's talk about two areas, how, why the church as a whole and as a community doesn't experience and why an individual, and start with the, the church. Um, what you describe here, that, that description of the kingdom of God, this is what people hunger for. This is what a community of faith actually hungers for. When we experience that, we go, this is what I was made for. This is what the church is, is, is supposed to be. But we have to face the fact that, for the most part, in our churches in North America, we are not designed for this. Uh, we actually have to go against many of our structures in order to experience this. Our structures require getting enough people coming to our church, programs that have to be filled, things that we're doing we have to get volunteers for, etc., etc. We've got buildings, we've got property, we have all these things that have to be taken care of, and there's a lot of energy that, that, that goes into that, where in reality we're called to experience the reality of Christ among us, and it doesn't take a lot uh, uh, to do that. We're designed actually as churches generally to provide religious goods and services to people so that they end up coming to our church versus uh, another church in town. Uh, the way to push back at that, because we can't really change all the structures that, that we have. Uh, it's, you know, it's the, the cure kills a patient uh, at that point. Um, and so I, I think what people more and more are doing is establishing, and I know you guys are doing all these experiments with, with missional communities, smaller groups of people who gather together and are committed in three areas. Uh, community, um, deep community, deep connectedness with other people, a pursuit of our formation, not only our individual spiritual formation, but our communal formation in a very disciplined way, and then mission, living on mission in a community, recognizing that I'm not 
um, that God doesn't wake up in the morning not knowing what to do and is going to check with Kent's missional community to see what he should kind of help with today. It's this recognition that God is an active God, uh, uh, an initiating God. He's already at work. He's already doing stuff. And so we enter into our lives with an awareness and attentiveness of finding out what God is up to, and then we join him in that. It's hard to do all three, mission, formation, and, uh, uh, and community, uh, because our lives are so crazy. But we must, uh, in order to experience this well, everything has to be reoriented around these three things, where we love each other deeply, you know, we're eating together, we're each on other's lives, uh, all the kids in the group are on the, our refrigerators, we, we pictures of them, we know, uh, we, 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 we love each other well, we're pursuing spiritual formation as a group, um, celebrating the Lord's Supper together, reconciliation, uh, all these kinds of things, um, and uh, we're on mission together. We're believing that God is at work in our lives and in our neighborhood, and so we join God in, in this process. So churches that are seeking to experience that will, uh, who aren't experiencing the beauty of the kingdom of God, to, to some degree we just have to say because we haven't structured our lives, our communal lives around experiencing that. The same thing goes with individuals. Why do we, we miss out? Is because we haven't structured our lives around experiencing that. We've tried to add the pursuit of Christianity as another thing, another important thing among a lot of other important things in our life. The parables you did last week on the... Um, the, the parable of the, the pearl of great price and the treasure hidden in the field. The whole point of that is that the kingdom of God is so beautiful, so, such of great worth, that once you discover it, you sell everything you have so that you can enter fully uh, into that. I mean, Jesus really meant that when he said it. So you have to have this vision of what life in the kingdom of God actually feels like, what's the experience of it, that there is a... Uh, um, it's, it's the best of all possible lives to live. And so you picture this. And then you, we have to make the decision, uh, very firm... Uh, a decision that we're going to pursue that life and then we just engage in the various means and activities that help create space for the, uh, the kingdom of God to uh, be experienced in, in our midst. So earlier you mentioned the infrequency with which millennials will participate in the life of a church as it is currently structured and organized. Now that's, an, that's an important thing as it relates to Oak Hills, not to mention other churches. Right. The idea of a generation of people is, is coming, and they are not, they're not oriented toward, they're, it's not an automatic default. Uh, maybe the opposite. The default is to resist it. So what kinds of things should we and others be thinking about as it relates to the future of the church, and in particular millennials? Well, we have this thing we do, we do called Elevate, and uh, three O'Killians were a part of it last year, um, where we bring five, um, five men and five women, all millennial age, 25 to 35-ish, um, you know, give or take on both sides of that. And, we, um, and the, the thing that is required, we, I bring denominational executives into it, and our job is one thing, is to shut the pie hole and just listen to what is being said. And we ask the millennials, give us your best shot. You know, tell us what's wrong. Tell us what upsets you. Tell us your experience of the church, the denomination, etc., those kinds of things. And usually they're not shy. And, uh, but usually they haven't had a place where they've been able to do that. And someone doesn't do the, yeah, but what about, hey, yeah, but. Um, obviously millennials, or we should realize this, are not monolithic. They don't, they don't speak with one voice. 
Um, but we should be really careful. And if you've ever done this, don't do it ever again. Uh, but there's, there's all these, if, you, if you're on Facebook or some social media, you see all these posts regularly about lazy millennials. Or, or don't, don't do that. Because it's not true. Um, it's, just, it's just absolutely not true. What we have to recognize is that there's a, a person in the back applauding on this one, and thank you for, for that. Um, the, the millennials are simply not that interested in taking over daddy's business. Um, and that is what we have to recognize. We built this, use it from the church perspective, we built this thing. We built the structures, all this kind of thing. And now we're saying, well, how come... Now we get to get the millennials to come in and take over the stuff that we built, take over daddy's business. They're not that interested in it. Whenever you do uh, um, uh, conferences for churches about reaching millennials, leaders come, old farts like myself, come, and we're about how do we then do church differently so more millennials will come to our church. It's the wrong question. Um, uh, it's not going to work because they're not that interested. We have to just change the whole discussion, and we have to actually, those of us in power, have to learn from them. We need to create places at the table uh, that, uh, because they need to come and save us. These, these people have to live in our minds. We have to continually think about the millennials that we know. The 27-year-old guy who's working at Starbucks and uh, the 26-year-old server at a trendy restaurant some, someplace, a 32-year-old young couple with a baby who are trying to carve out uh, a, um, a life of some kind, uh, and their spirituality is not like ours. They think differently about God, and they ask different questions, and we have to create spaces where those questions are actually able to be Asked in a way that is non-judgmental and is listening and seeking to learn uh, from them. Older people, we have to make room. Not so that millennials will then come in and take over the programs and the systems that we have created, but so that they can come in and end those things. Because some of them need to be ended. Um, when Oak Hills began, I was 30 years old. Our elders uh, were 25, 26, 27. We have one of them here and the two of them here in the room. We had people say that we couldn't actually be a church uh, because our elders were 25 years old. How can you have an elder who's 25 years old? Uh, but that was the nature of the church. We were all young and we were all learning together. As we get older, as we get bigger, it's very, very hard now for a millennial to break into a church where the leadership is all a bunch of old white guys. And I think that's some of the stuff that we have to, to, to work on. They need to come in and begin to change things. And things need to be changed. And older people are not going to be the ones to lead that change. Um, the millennials will know what needs to be done to reach their own generation. And they have to have their own encounter uh, with the presence of the living uh, Christ themselves and then decide how that's going to be lived out. We older people need to be available, available to mentor, support, love, make room, and always humble and listening but we need to get out of the way. Just a word of affirmation here at Oak Hills. Um, we, had, uh, we had three from Oak Hills come to one of these ele Elevate, and they were the only ones in the group, and again, I can just say this here in this friendly environment, um, who felt that they were at a, at a place, in an environment, where they could ask the kind of questions that were being asked there. Others in their room said, if I asked these kind of questions in my place, I'd get fired. And so um, kudos to you guys for creating 
a kind of an environment where people can ask uh, hard questions, and you're doing a good job there. Uh, but you know, stay at it. Good. So <clears throat> we've talked about all this stuff, and it's kind of been, you know, uh, what's going on, uh, kind of out in the world and in the church world, and so on. But you've had a journey the last couple of years. You were the founding pastor here. You were here 31 years. And so you've had your own individual ride for the last couple of years. And just to kind of wrap this up, I think it would be good for you to reflect a bit on how that journey's been, what you've learned, where it's been challenging, um, where it's been formative, just in terms of moving out of the pastorate for 31 years, moving, up, moving away from out of the church that you started 31 years ago and into this whole new job. So talk about what that whole experience has been like. Well, um, it was harder than I thought it was going to be. Uh, I kind of knew it was going to be hard. I kept telling myself it was going to be hard because all the books say it's going to be hard. It was harder than I thought it was going to be. Um, it was very much the, the, a very, very good time uh, for, for me to, to, to move on. Um, I, Diane and I, we, we knew this. We prayed about it, thought about it, talked about it. I knew, and rightfully so, it's just the, the way things uh, grow and evolve. Um, that I was not and should not have been the, the voice going forward into, into the future. I knew that clearly. I didn't want to be one of those guys that, um, you know, that, you know, played one or two seasons too long, you know. Um, and uh, Oak Hills, my experience at Oak Hills was just an extraordinary uh, experience. It continues to be. Uh, and the whole process of leaving has been great. I mean, Mike, you've been great. The Elder Board's been great. The, the, um, and so all that's been good. But... Uh, Oak Hills, and again, I can say this here in this kind of friendly group, but it's a unique place with a kind of unique uh, culture. It's not the only place like this, but there aren't that many, and I get around a bit. Um, I love my new experiences of out there working with pastors and leaders and, and, and churches and kind of the new organization I'm a part of, and our denomination has been phenomenal in pushing into these new areas. But that transition has been harder for me than I, I, I thought it was going to be. At Oak Hills Church, you know, this kind of goes with the founding pastor thing, but there's a little bit in which the culture kind of reflects a little of my personality, and so I can kind of show up and be myself, and it kind of works. Uh, if I show up and be myself sometimes in my current situation, I can get in a lot of trouble. And, and so, and I've done that a few times and have gotten in a lot of trouble. And, and so... Um, I've had to learn, figure out how to modulate that, and, um, and I think I've been learning that. But part of it is that kind of, I'm done with this, not quite fitting in there, so it's this, this displacement. It's not knowing, uh, you know, where I belong, how to show up and be myself, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. It was unsettling to me. Uh, the, it, in some ways it continues to be. There have been times of discouragement, I would say depression, um, and uh, on top of that, and this is a, feels a little more vulnerable, I don't know why, but um, just getting older is tougher than I thought it would be. I mean, some of you have been with me for a long time, and you may remember when I was quite young talking about how much I look forward to uh, getting older because I'd be cool. It's not as much fun as I, <laughs> I, I, I thought it was going to be. Um, some of the louder laughing right now comes from people who are realizing it's not quite as much fun. Um, and then on top of that, I know many of you don't know this, but others don't, that I was diagnosed here with uh, prostate cancer. 
uh, August 1st, I start five and a half weeks of uh, five days a week uh, radiation to kind of address that. I should be fine through it. It should take care of everything. But it's just this kind of recognition that, you know, um, I, I can't depend on all the stuff I was able to depend on before, energy, my strength, physicality of everything, my, um, you know, the, the, the stuff that I could kind of de depend on uh, is less dependable. Uh, the, and so I'm learning limitations. Um, it, within the Christian church, there's always been this tension ever since the beginning. It's a beautiful tension. Um, between the active life and the contemplative life, and the activist and the con contemplative. Um, I'm hardwired as an activist. I like to do stuff. The, the contemplative is they like to be. Um, I like to do. I like to change the world. Um, the contemplative likes to change the world, but they, they orient around changing the world by who they are becoming. Um, as an activist in this season of my life, I'm, I'm leaning more heavily into the contemplative side um, I still have desire to change the world, do things, um, but I don't always, I don't think as often now that my, my job is to try to make things happen. Um, a very good friend of ours, uh, Dave Johnson, uh, from a pastor of a church in Minneapolis, he's been there 38 years or so, and he's uh, ending his career there this, this summer. And so we hang out. We were in similar seasons of life. And he came out uh, this last month, and we spent three days together up in Tahoe just hanging out, praying together. And this is some of the things that we, we entered into, this, recognizing, this recognition that what we really desire more than anything else in this season now is encounter, encounter with the risen Christ, with his presence uh, among us. And um, that, uh, that encounter, that that. That, um, that presence is a, is a thing that we both long for. We spend time just praying for each other, praying for God's Spirit to, to, to move among us. And so if I was saying anything, what I'm learning, what I'm desiring, what I'm pressing into is this encounter with the reality of the, the presence of God. It's, it's good for, for you to know, uh, I, I've watched this with my, my own eyes, the, the being in a room, with a group of pastors and leaders, and Kent's in there talking about these things, asking questions, and you can just feel the sense of longing, hunger. There's got to be a different way. There's got to be a better way. This vision of a life with God, of encountering God in a real, in a real way that actually makes a difference in how one lives and serves and ministers. So the point is this, is that Kent stepped out of his role here at Oak Hills, but he stepped into a role with people all over the United States, all over Canada. And it's pretty profound to, to feel the hunger in the room and realize that through, through Kent's ministry there, they actually have someone that can help them find a path to, to get help and to get answers to the longings that they have. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you today. Uh, thank you for Kent and thank you for the vision you gave him and Diane so many years ago for Oak Hills. We're grateful for uh, what you're up to in and through him these days, the work that he's doing at uh, NAB, the, the lives he's impacting, the, the proclamation he's making of your kingdom and for the people that he's interacting with and what you're stirring up in them. And we continue to pray for fruitful ministry and good work to be done there. 
We pray as well for his desire to encounter you more deeply, to experience you, uh, to be shaped and transformed by your spirit at work within him, and pray that you will give him occasions and experiences where he is uh, where he meets you and he is nourished by you. And we pray for his health struggle and for this cancer that he's dealing with, the treatment that is upcoming. We ask you to, to use it and to give the doctors wisdom and give his body strength as he goes through it. And we would ask for you to heal his body and restore him to full health. And so again, we're thankful for him. We commit him to you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. So <laughs> we, we, for all the years that we were working together and leading together, we'd come to this point in the service and we'd have this little quiet, I'm not going to do the benediction, neither am I. Well, I'm not doing it, so you do it. No, I'm not going to do it. So we may be here till Friday, but in any case, Kent's going to give all us right, the benediction. Right, yes. to submissive, you're a new guy. <laughs> Everyone, if you would stand, please. Let's remember we go out into a world that is uh, precious with, that is precious to God. And we go, the only thing that we can bring that makes a difference is the reality of Christ among us uh, and the love that he creates in us and the love that then we can come uh, to a, a people who are afraid, who are running scared, who have this nagging sense they don't measure up, they're not good enough, who wonder if God is real. And one of our jobs is to go there living in the reality of the presence of God among us. We can't do that in our own power. So let us send each other out today uh, with a prayer that God would be for us what we cannot be for ourselves. And that we would be for each other what we need to be for each other. So that we can go in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you go, may you experience the peace of Christ. And I was saying it wrong. It so matter. that. And so that the peace of Christ may be with, you, be all. with you all. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.